1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul moves from reprehensible moral behavior to a church with lawsuits between believers. He continues to work through the many problems found in the church at Corinth. As we look to the reading of God's word, if you would join me in prayer. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from your mouth. So we ask you that this day, that you would make us hungry for this heavenly food, that it would nourish us in the ways of eternal life. And this we ask through Jesus Christ, who indeed is the bread of heaven. Amen. Beginning in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the worlds be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. The word of the Lord. As Paul hits his stride in his letter, you can feel his own embarrassment or disbelief with these Corinthians. I wonder if somewhere along the line he didn't say to himself, I can't believe I spent a year and a half with you. And this is what you have to show for it. Sort of like Paul, if he's showing a resume to somebody and they go, well, after Athens, I see this 18-month gap. What happened there? Got hit in the head. Nobody wants to claim Corinth because Corinth has so many problems. The good news for us is that all the problems Corinth has, we have. We're no different. We deal with the same things that they do. One of the deep-seated lessons that we see from this is how long it takes for the Lord to transform us. Even if you're the Apostle Paul, there are no quick fixes to indwelling sin and long-established patterns of unrighteousness. It takes time. And that's what's at work here the Lord working with his people to change hearts. Specifically, Paul reminds them as Christians that business is never just business. In God's economy, business is never just business. Whenever you hear someone say that, there's usually whatever happens next is never good. Because all of these areas are the proving ground for the gospel. Our lives are to be marked by a profound new way of doing things. Whether that be business or anything else, how we carry out our lives is the proving ground for our faith in Christ. And dealing with disputes is never easy. But it is the exact place that we see the reality of Jesus come to brewing fruition to us. And because you and I have a new identity in Christ, Our lives are to reflect that in every level, in every area. 
And this young church is struggling with, with putting on their new identity. They seem to careen from one side of the road to the other, trying to keep it between the ditches. And that is never easy. But it doesn't help if the two in front are fighting over who gets to drive. And the passengers in the back are reaching up and trying to grab the wheel. All these people moving things around. Nothing is going the way that it's supposed to. Paul, in his second letter to them, 2 Corinthians, he's going to remind them that they are new creations in Christ. And that this newness in who they are now is actually at war with who they once were. And that's the tension that they feel. And here Paul is saying there's a new way as Christians that you are to do business. And there is a new way to deal with wrongs. Well, looking first then at this new way of doing business, he starts right out of the gate. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And the answer, of course, he's saying implied is no. Now, Paul is speaking about a civil lawsuit. Like our world around us, the Roman Empire had a, a criminal court and a civil court. This is not a criminal matter. This is a civil one. Likely is either over a money issue or a property issue. Paul mentions some three times in his list of sin, the sin of greed. And in verses 7 to 8, specifically, he mentions being defrauded. So money was likely to be at the bottom of this. Now, the minute you enter into this, somebody could already be saying, Oh, whoa, Paul, you're an apostle and all that, but you don't know the first thing about business. I don't tell you how to run the church, so I don't think that you need to come in here and tell me how to conduct my business. Following the whole teaching of the Bible, Paul flatly declares that all of life is lived out before the Lord. Life is not split into different parts with different rules. It's all one cloth. A mobster giving money for a woman's shelter from the profits that he made in a prostitution ring is not going to work. You can't do over here and then try to do over here something separate. And Paul is bringing this to their attention. Now, he probably ought not to tell a contractor the techniques of building a house, but he certainly can talk to him about business ethics. People paying for concrete reinforced with rebar and no rebar is added, that's not a technique issue. That's a moral problem. And Paul is scandalized by how poorly they are treating one another. They have failed to take responsibility for an incestuous man we saw last week, chapter 5. And now they're failing to take responsibility for settling their own disputes. The grievance is within the church. Four times he, in these few verses, he uses the word brother. And he, he highlights this. Now, like in English, uh, in Greek, brother can refer to both men and women in, in context. He, he's speaking of that you're treating other fellow Christians this way. And then he, he shifts immediately in, in verse 2 to, to draw this out further. Do you not know the saints will judge the world? And then in verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Well, what does that mean exactly? It's hard to know for sure. Uh, Paul could be quoting back some of their own catchphrases that he's done here and there where they've been boasting about these sort of things. Or he could be talking about the matters when Christ returns. There are verses that speak about our participation in final judgment. Daniel 7, Matthew 19, Revelation 3. Uh, it's not exactly clear what that means. 
but there's an indication that something like that will take place. And in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says that the faith and the obedience of Christians will accuse the faithlessness of unbelievers. And he uses the example of the Queen of Sheba that her actions would stand as an indictment against the Jewish rejection of of Jesus. So in some way, our own faithfulness, our own obedience will be an indictment against those who are not. But he doesn't really give a great explanation of this. That's not his point. He's simply arguing from a greater to a lesser. In verse 2 and 3, right after he says, And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Verse 3, how much more than matters pertaining to this life? So he's greater to a lesser. Last week I mentioned an inside church voice and an outside church voice. And Paul is using that here too. In chapter 5, he said, don't be judging those outside the church. Deal with that. Deal with the person inside the church. And here's the exact opposite. Don't go outside of the church to deal with people inside the church. Judge the matter between yourselves. In verse 4, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church, meaning those outside the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be there's no one among you wise enough to settle the dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. They have been boasting about how wise they are. And Paul calls them on it. Okay, smart people, you've even surpassed me. Okay, are you saying there's no one smart enough from within you guys to deal with this, that you've got to take it outside? Now, the church should be a safe place for sinners, to be sure. But never a safe place for sin. We are to deal with sin. Conflicts and disputes are a prime example of this. This is an in-house problem. We deal with it that way. Don't air the dirty laundry of personal conflict before the world by trying to involve them in it. Now, to be very clear, criminal matters are for criminal courts. If a person breaks the law, it in some way is a church issue, but it is certainly a state issue. We don't conduct criminal investigations. We look at the moral issues involved. So, clear example, sexual abuse allegations go straight to the police to be investigated. And then we would follow up on what they would find. Paul is talking about what would have been their version of a small claims court, civil disputes. Not criminal issues, but civil ones. And Christians have taken this so seriously through the ages that there have been actually court systems for dealing with these types of matters within the church. Many of you are familiar with Peacemaker Ministries, which was actually started by an attorney from our sister church in Billings years ago. There are several Christian arbitration and conciliation organizations out there like that. For this very purpose, it's for uh, legal and binding arbitration and reconciliation. So that within the church, there's an avenue to deal with conflict. In our own church, in our bylaws, in joining the church's members, we actually have that written in. That if there's a conflict that should arise, that you either don't take the church or members to court, that we seek to reconcile through a Christian organization for that purpose. At the presbytery level, all pastors who have 
you know, our, our call to a church includes a statement of Christian reconciliation for that very reason, that there's a problem that we have to deal with that in-house for all these civil matters. That is what Christians through the ages have done in reference to what Paul is saying here. Dealing with conflict in the church is not simply business is business. We've been given a new way of doing business with one another, and it should look different than the world. It includes the gospel. And this includes a new way of receiving wrong. He says in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourself wrong and defraud even your own brothers. You've heard me use this expression, this phrase, floor and ceiling ethics. It's not mine. I think it originally came from Old Testament scholar uh, Gordon Wenham. What, what that means is the Bible at times gives us floor ethics. The minimal standard which we are not to drop beneath. An example of that in the Old Testament says in war, don't capture foreign women and abuse them. That's floor. That's the bottom basement level for how you deal with life. It also gives us ceiling ethics. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other also. For every thou shalt not, it includes a thou shalt do. You shall not steal, which includes you shall care for and be concerned with your neighbor's property. So the easy one, the floor, don't steal his horse. Okay, if you find his horse, feed it and take care of it until you can return it to him. Now someone will say, well, why are there floor and ceiling ethics? Because the Bible deals with real life and real people. Getting the minimum at times is a victory when dealing with our sinful hearts. And we know that. Like, don't go below this. But don't think that this is what you've been called to do. The low bar is not the standard. And Paul elevates this as we see Jesus doing. Suffer wrong for the sake of the gospel. That's a ceiling ethic. Immediately someone goes, well, how do you humanly do this? It's not from a human heart, is it? It's from a heart that's been transformed by the Holy Spirit. You could see someone immediately objecting. Whoa, whoa, wait, Paul, wait. No, no, I'm right. No, Paul, I'm really, I'm really, really right on this one. I'm in the right, okay? Do you understand that part? I'm right. Yeah. Okay, you're right. But for the sake of keeping Christ's name above reproach, can you give up your right to be right? In many ways, it sort of reminds you, you know, of a person who gets pulled over for speeding and they, they instantly and indignantly cry out to the officer, I wasn't speeding this time. Yeah, that's the this time. We all have done wrong. And even if you're right in this instance, you also know you have done wrong. And we are so grateful for the grace and the mercy of the Lord in those areas. And the question is, who's able to receive wrongs in this way? We'll look at it next week, but we'll peek ahead just a little bit to verse 11. 
Who, who can receive wrongs in this way? Well, it's those who've been washed, who've been sanctified, who've been justified in the name of Jesus. What, what helps me endure present loss now is the knowledge of future judgment to come. God will right all wrongs, and I can live then in the present knowing this with some things not completely dealt with or left unsolved. Because I'm going to give that to God to take care of. And Paul says that. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? The Spirit of Christ dwells in believers, and the cross of Christ is central to our faith. Living out the pain and suffering of the cross is a part of who we are in Christ. Jesus suffered wrong for our sake. Can we suffer wrong for his? That's what Paul is is speaking to these, these young Christians about. Can you suffer wrong, even when you know you're right, for the sake of your brothers, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ? So, let's get down to brass tacks. Is Paul forbidding all civil lawsuits? No. Wisdom always needs to be applied. Their courts were different than ours. It very much was the case that those with more prestige and money could buy their way to civil justice. We have something similar to that in some ways, but not nearly as bad as theirs. Paul himself appealed to Caesar in his own legal case. For the Romans, it just seemed like a religious intramural dispute. But Paul made it a legal issue. He needed the protection of the law offered him because of the duplicity of the Jewish leaders. And there may be circumstances where this becomes necessary even between those claiming to be Christians. A lot of, of counsel, of seeking of wisdom needs to be done, even in Christian arbitration. To be able to, to talk through this with godly and wise people and understanding your own heart and why are you pursuing what you're pursuing. And again, their circumstances could look different. It's not simply a one-size-fits-all. One commentator reminds us, going to law changes relationships for the worse. Acquaintances or even family members become adversaries for the drive for victory replaces the hope of reconciliation. People don't come out of a courtroom and then decide to go off and have dinner together. Oh, you won that one. Hey, you want to go get something to eat? They can hardly look at one another. Just often seething with anger and resentment. Going to law changes relationships for the worse. And that's something we need to be so aware of as we deal with conflicts within our own sphere. There's got to be a weighing out of what's taking place. Now, when Paul says to keep matters between believers, he's not saying no disputes. He says, when disputes come, 
we have the resource, resources of the gospel to work through them. So it's not no disputes, but how you deal with the disputes. We don't hide disputes from the world. We deal with them in-house, but not hiding them. We should show how Christians are to work through these issues. We expose sin as a response to the gospel. We're not trying to keep a false image out before the world. We're dealing with stuff in-house so that the world can see that the gospel of Jesus is real. So in another arena, putting it in a different way, if a student comes home with five A's and one C, what gets talked at at the table? As a parent, if you think your child's grade affects your image, you will focus on how they should be doing better. Because inwardly, your poor grade makes me look bad. Like five A's and a C, you have an image problem. For yourself, not for your student. But notice that your behavior is affecting my identity. No, your identity is not in your grades, it's in Christ. So your identity in Christ means that how you work through conflicts reflects this as well. You're not trying to hide. You're trying to deal with it realistically. Say, this is what it means to be Christians in dispute. And the Corinthians are called to an entire new way of doing business because they are a new community in Christ. Loving one another also meant the hard and the difficult job of entering into the messy lives of one another. It's difficult. I have three books on reconciliation by three different authors. One of them is a pastor... The other two are leaders in the church, one a woman, one a man. Three published authors on forgiveness and reconciliation, all from the same church. None of them are now in that same church any longer, nor are they on good terms with one another. It's hard. It's difficult. There is no pretense that this is easy. Maybe a thousand quiet times are equal to suffering loss, one loss, one wrong. It's these moments that give us the most inertia of our growth in grace. The most resistance that we have to push against. I've also seen people who have been cheated do their very best to keep relationships going because the money is not worth the friendship. That's just money. It's all right. And they work really, really hard to maintain that friendship. I've seen that. You've seen that. The beautiful picture of the gospel. It's not a picture. It's the gospel at work. And if you've experienced new life in Christ, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, then your judgments will be cross-based judgments. We know that there's a future inheritance that surpasses anything that we have here. And we hold that by faith as we follow Jesus. That cross-based judgments are what we're looking for. As Paul already said, this is complete foolishness to the world. The world looks at that and goes, you're crazy. That's a lot of money at stake. Well, yeah, it might be a little unethical, but I think it's in your favor. Just get what you can while you can. 
The world is constantly saying that. We live in such a litigious society. Because they believe the cross is foolish. They believe that living for other people is foolish. That trying to honor the Lord in our disputes and our conflict is foolish. Brothers and sisters, let us live with a little foolishness for Christ. Let us be willing to be wronged or defrauded that the name of Jesus is lifted up. That the wisdom we use is a cross-based wisdom, not the wisdom of this world that we indeed would be a little foolish for Jesus would be a great thing. Father, these things are hard. They're difficult. We ask that you would help us. Father, we are so grateful that your spirit dwells in us, that he cries out to us, Abba, Father, from us to you. And Lord, we need that. We pray that you would continue to transform us moment by moment, from glory to glory into the image of Jesus. Lord, that we indeed would be marked as a people who do not try to hide the garbage, but Lord, that we would be willing to deal with it as you have called us to, and we need you to do that. Move on us, we pray. Change us, we ask. And all of this we ask and pray through Jesus, our risen Lord. Amen.